his enemies in the Senate became very afraid. And so they dispatched him, thinking they would break his power and break his stronghold. It's what you do to an enemy in the political realm. You dispatch them. You give them a position of honor far away from the center or the bully pulpit, we might say. So, he went to Gaul in Spain and he raised an army and he defeated many of your forefathers. The Celtic people. The Saxons. He put them under the power of Rome. And the Roman Empire was truly born under the hand of Julius Caesar. All of world history, particularly the history of Europe, was changed by this man. His name was inherited to the kings of Rome from that day forward. They were all known as the Caesars. They inherited his power, most of them unable to control the people. Not Julius. He moved the people. And so Pompey and the Senate, scared of this general who they had put in power, called him home. Asked him to disband his army. Or he was to stand in fear of being opposed to the emperor and worthy of death. In January of 49 B.C., Julius Caesar faced the hardest decision of his life. Would he obey the Roman emperor? Would he disband his army? Would he come back to Rome and live a citizen's life for the good of the king? Well, the Roman historian Suetonius, who is also a biographer and wrote the earliest biography on Julius Caesar, recorded for us the thoughts of the men who surrounded Julius Caesar on this date and even the thoughts of Julius himself. And this is what he says. When the news came to Ravana, where Caesar was staying, which is in northern Italy, that the interposition of the tribunes in his favor had been utterly rejected and that they themselves had fled Rome, he immediately sent forward some cohorts, yet secretly to prevent any suspicion of his plan and to keep up appearances, he attended the public games and examined the model of a fencing school which he proposed building. Then, as usual, he sat down at his table with a large company of friends. However, after the sun had set, he mounted a mule from a nearby mill and put it on his carriage and he set forward on his journey as privately as possible and with an exceedingly scanty protection. The lights went out. He lost his way. Near sunset or sunrise, he found his self and he led his men to the edge of the Rubicon River. That probably doesn't mean a lot to you. 
unless you're a student of ancient history. But in Rome, it was illegal for a general to cross the Rubicon River with an amassed army. It was tantamount to treason. Julius Caesar faced the hardest decision of his life. There was no going back. He turned to his men and said, Still, we can retreat. But once let us pass this little bridge, and nothing is left but to fight it out with arms. Having said that, a flutist came up and began to play a little tune to calm his nerves. Some other men rose with instruments, and Julius Caesar was emboldened by their response. He grabbed a trumpet. He ran to the middle of the Rubicon. He turned and faced his army and said, Advance. He blew the sound of the charge for the troops to cross the river. He cried, Let us go where the omens of the gods and the crimes of our enemies summon on us. The fateful words, the die is cast. He went to Rome. He brutally took charge and he ruled for about five years before he was assassinated on the floor of the Senate. But in his short life, he transformed our world. Almost unmatched in his influence on Western civilization. Almost. Except that there was this man born in the East. Around the turn of the century. The son of a carpenter. A poor man. His birth was not attended by kings. It was heralded by shepherds. He lived his life innocent, perfect. And in John chapter 12, he stood at the edge of his Rubicon. On the back of a donkey, Jesus Christ looked out over Jerusalem, knowing, knowing that once he entered the city, the die was cast. His fate was set. From a human perspective, there was no turning back. They'd been trying to kill him since John chapter 7. He's evaded them twice. At least. He's been in hiding. But as we saw last week, when he reached Bethany on his way to the feast of the Passover, he was heralded. He was thrown a party fit for a king. He was anointed by Mary. This is the end of his life. This is the end of his public ministry. And I want us to see a picture of his purpose. Last week we saw a picture of his coronation. This week, what was his purpose? Was he nothing more than 
a poor, delusioned pauper made famous by his eloquence, his charm, his charisma? Or was he, as the Bible reveals him, the Son of God? Who came with a purpose. I want us to see a picture of his purpose. Jesus Christ, Luke says, set his face toward Jerusalem as he began the journey to reach the city. He would not turn. He would not be persuaded to stop. He would cross, in spiritual terms, the Rubicon. He would go. He would face his enemies. And he would suffer Temporary pain and humiliation and death which we have no idea about. We can't even fathom it. Don't even... You can attempt, but you can't get close. We do not understand what this man suffered. Temporarily, he faced the worst of conditions. But he knew that the lot was cast. Not cast by fate or the omen of the gods, but by his father. And he knew that on the day of his death, he would win his victory. For he would be resurrected and he would ascend back to the right hand of the father. Where he rules and reigns today. Let's look at this passage. Let's read it together. Now that we've kind of got the idea of the gravity of what we're about to talk about. I mean, the people have just lauded him. Hosanna, saying, salvation has come. That's what they're saying. Save us now. Salvation has come. They lauded him. They welcomed him. They waved branches in his way. They laid their coats down that he might step on them and not on the dirt. They cried out with such a fervor. They brought the crowds together. As he descended the Mount of Olives with the sacrifices going to the temple, the high priest looks up and says, What good have we done? The whole world goes out after him. He didn't know how true his words were. You see, he said these words, I believe, in reference to the Jews. The whole world of the Jews is going out after him. We've lost. He's won. What good have we done? He had no idea what we would read next in our chapter 12. Look in verse 20. As John continues in his narration of these events. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Presumably Greeks which had converted to Judaism. Or else they wouldn't have gone up to the feast. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These words are emboldened on almost every pulpit in the evangelical world. The first message I ever preached at First Baptist Church of Sachs. Nervous, shaking, fearful, as I usually am. 
I, t- I never looked at the inside of the pulpit. And when I turned to lay my notes and my Bible down, these words, Sir, we would see Jesus. You have no idea how those words calm the heart of the servant of the Lord. It's not about seeing Philip and Andrew or preachers. It's about seeing Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus is their request. Philip went and told Andrew, because he never can make a decision by himself in the Bible, and Andrew is his favorite cohort to help him make the decision, probably because they're both from Bethsaida and probably because they are a lot alike. Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus. And Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I don't know if he said that to the Greeks because it doesn't say that he said that to the Greeks. I think he said this probably in the outer court of the temple, which would have been the place of the Gentiles. So it's very possible they heard it. But he was talking to his men. The hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Strange reply to a simple question. We would see Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice pierced from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there was divided. Some said it was an angel and others that it was thunder. And Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The whole world has gone after Him, the high priest said. And Jesus says, you've not seen anything yet. I'm going to draw all men to myself. Not just the Jews. He said this to show what kind of death He was going to die. So the crowd answered Him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They did not hear these words from the law. At best estimation, this is their commentary on some truth that is in the Old Testament, which is that the Son of David would sit on the throne of Jerusalem, would reign forever. But the Bible never promised that He would, at His first coming, sit on the throne forever in Jerusalem. It didn't promise that. They're reading into it. So, 
How can you say that the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, the, the long-awaited King, the Messiah, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Hearkening back to John chapter 1, when John said he was the light of the world. Right? The light is coming in the world, but the darkness did not overcome it. Hearkening back to John chapter 8 at the festival of booths when the lights and the lanterns were being carried and he said, I am the light of the world. He who has me will never dwell in darkness. Jesus said, you have the light a little while longer. You better believe in the light for the darkness comes. Implication, the door will be shut to the ark. The light will go out in your eyes. Your fate will be set. You will have no opportunity. You will die in your sin. That's his implication. You will wander around in the darkness, bumping like fools into one another. You will have no hope. The light's in the world a little longer. Believe. So what will we make of this passage Well, first of all, we would say Jesus' purpose in life was to die so that he could bear much fruit. That's the first thing I would draw out of this passage. Jesus' purpose, the picture of his purpose is that he would die. Jesus did not come believing he would live to be 80, 90 years old and live fat, happy, and dumb and die one day. An old man, he did not believe that. From his birth he knew. He was made to die. A purposeful death. It was the plan. The gospel was being revealed to the whole world. The purpose, we might say, of His coming was being revealed to the whole world. And we see it in verse 20, don't we? And there was coming up with them to the feast, Greeks. Kind of a shocking change of events, isn't it? Here, the Jews have just heralded their long-awaited Messiah. The king of the what? What would they have said? The king of the Jews. Now, there were some Greeks. Strange, John. It's strange unless you know that Jesus Christ was sent to die. That he might draw from the tribes and tongues and nations of the earth. All of Israel. John understood this as he writes. And so he uses these Greeks as a picture of his purpose. Not just to save the Jews, but to save from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. John chapter 10 verses 14 through 16 come to mind. If you hold your place and turn back, you can see the words of our Lord. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So who are your sheep? And I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
Not just the sheep of the nation of Israel would be saved by this Savior, but the sheep which are scattered among the tribes of all the earth would be saved by this Savior. I remember John chapter 11, just one page over from where we are now. In verse 49, we begin to read, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest for the year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John is saying the Greeks represent the fact that the gospel is for Gentiles like you and me, not just for the lost sheep of Israel. The purpose Jesus came for was to gather the children of God from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. To bear much fruit is the way John says Jesus said it. To bear much fruit. And these Greeks, they come not just to Jesus. They obviously are, we assume maybe, fearful a little of this strange rabbi who comes talking in these riddles and rhymes. They're interested but a little fearful. So they go to one like them. A little like them. Now these, Philip and Andrew, are Hebrews, but their names are Greek, Philip and Andrew. And they live in Bethsaida, which borders the Greek-speaking people. And so the Greeks find someone as a go-between. These are good go-betweens, Philip and Andrew. As I said earlier, in the Bible we find them always, you know... Philip going after Nathaniel. What a beautiful picture. Philip's always going after people. Or if people are coming to him to see Jesus. Obviously, he was a welcoming person. Obviously, he put off the air of acceptance to people. They, they wouldn't have gone to Peter. Can you imagine that confrontation? I mean, years later, Peter had a dream that told him the Gentiles would believe, and he still didn't believe. Right? Still angry about it. I can imagine that exchange. Can't you? The Greeks come to Peter. Cephas, we'd like to see Jesus. Go away. You're lucky we even let you come in this building. You filthy Gentiles. Our, our teacher is a pure teacher. He wouldn't be defiled by a bunch of scum like you. Maybe not, but but Maybe. God sent them to Philip. Aren't you glad he sent them to Philip? And Philip to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip to Jesus. And Jesus, far from shooing them away, uses this as the platform to announce his coming impending death. What a privileged position God gives these Greeks. The opportunity to announce that the end is here again, finally. The last public discourse saying Centered around their question. It's a place of honor. God preaching the gospel one more time through His Son in public. The purpose of the life of Jesus is not only that the gospel was being revealed to the whole world, but that Jesus was to die a substitutionary, atoning death 
so that we would bear much fruit. Now, I want to go through this with you. The hour has come. This phrase, the hour has come, it contrasts so beautifully with other phrases Jesus said in his own teaching. Remember John chapter 2, verse 4? His mother comes being like all mothers, very, um, how should I say this? She always knew what was right for her boy to be doing, right? So she comes to Jesus at the wedding. He's with his buddies. He's with his friends. He's having a grand time. They're celebrating this wedding. And she says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he turns to her, not in rebuke, but in making things clear. What does this have to do with me? My hour, he says, has not come. My hour has not come. What did he mean? He meant, be careful what you ask. Great miracles bring great attention, and great attention brings to those who rebel against the leadership death. (laughs) It's not time yet for that. Jesus, always aware of the timing of God in obedience to him. And carrying out the perfect plan. John chapter 7, verse 6. The Bible says that he hid from them. He was taken from them when they wanted to kill him because it was not his time. John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. Again, instances where the Jews seek to kill him. And John says it's not his hour. It's not his time. And then we come to John 12. And lo and behold, the first hearers of this, of this gospel would have perked up. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. The hour has come. You can imagine the disciples shocked. They've used to hearing, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Another day, another time, another place. Not now. It's here. He came to die. He came to die. Look what he says. The hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. It remains alone. Not what they expected. They've just ushered him in as the king. They have taken compassion. They have complicitly joined his rebellion. And now the guy that they wanted to take the throne says, I'm going to die. Can you imagine the anger that begins to dwell in their heart? Not the disciples necessarily, but the general Jew who had just committed treason against the most powerful man in all the world. Publicly committed treason by the hundreds of thousands. This doesn't look like it's going to go well. What is Jesus doing? Our Old Testament prophets promised He would deliver us. What's gone wrong? Nothing's gone wrong. The hour has come that He should be shown to be the Son of Man. An exalted title reserved only for the Messiah. It doesn't emphasize His humanity. It emphasizes the Spirit of God in Him. His Godness. And yet, the way it would be emphasized, the way he would be glorified is through death. Some wrongly believe in our day and even teach that his death, his life and his death are examples to us. Only. 
This is the crux of most evangelical theology, unfortunately, coming out today. It's the popular publication. If you go to Lifeway or any bookstore that I know of, you're going to find this theory more than any theory. Look at Jesus' life. What would Jesus do? Follow Jesus. Give your life away as a sacrifice. Now, I'm not discrediting that because he's going to even make that point. But that's only good if he first came to die as a substitutionary, atoning death. Amen? If he didn't do that, then you're following his example into utter lunacy. If that wasn't his purpose, examples don't matter. As Paul said, if he doesn't die on our behalf, if he wasn't resurrected then on our behalf, then we the most of all the world are to be pitied. What fools we are that we gave our life to this. Listen, he died in your place. He didn't die as merely an example. He was an example. He is an example. We're going to talk about that point in just a moment. But it is secondary to the fact that he died first as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That undergirds the example. That's the foundation so that then we can die like him. If that foundation is not there, then you're wasting your life. I'm wasting my life. It's not taught much any longer. I thank God for men who still write books and preach this truth. That He came not just simply to give an example, but to die in our place. That grain falls to the ground and dies. Giving up, as Mark says, His life for the many. And what is the result, John says? Fruit. Fruit. What is the fruit? The millions who through time have believed and been saved. What good did his death do? It did all the good for those who believe. And may I make this point also. It is implicit in this fact that he didn't die in the same way for every human. It's implicit. He died that he might bear much fruit. When you put a kernel of corn in the ground or wheat and that stalk comes up, it has very specific fruit. It doesn't bear the fruit of an apple tree, an orange tree. It bears corn. Like bears like. It's a simple principle, and we often overlook it. But the fact is that if he did not die for the elect, and in dying secure eternally their salvation, then he died for no one, and everyone will be lost. Because we are promised in the Scripture that everyone will not be saved. So if he died for you, and the pagan who's dying right now, in the same way, 
then both of you are going to hell. There's no hope of salvation, in other words. His death secured salvation. It bore fruit. It's not potential fruit that might happen. No, it's guaranteed it will happen. Do you see that? Do you hear that? Please understand that. You say, that sounds cruel. No. What would be cruel is if he died making everyone who is able, making the, giving them an offer, if, if for everyone who is able to believe, giving them an offer for salvation. Why would that be cruel? Because the Bible teaches us very clearly there is no one under the sun who is able to believe. No one. Therefore, he would have died a death, paid a price for nobody, and everybody would go to hell. How beautiful a truth it is that he gave his life specifically for those who would believe. He died ransoming souls from hell. Not potential. Actual. Effectual. Salvation was cured. When the wheat went in the ground, it bore much fruit. It is not alone. I understand I'm not poking fun. I know I'm dwelling on this point, but it's so important. Some would have us believe that our magnificent Savior stood on the portals of heaven, His blood being shed, hoping, begging, pleading, worried that somebody might believe and His blood wasn't wasted. I believe he stood on the portals of heaven begging and pleading and calling and drawing all men to himself. Men that the Father had given him, which he could not lose, which would be saved and resurrected and glorified. He gave his life for the many. For the many. And in the many, all will be saved. All what? All classes. Poorest to the richest. All ethnic groups. Dark skinned, light skinned, Spanish speaking and Chinese speaking and English speaking. Those who have power and those who are powerless. Those who are free and those who are slaves. Those who are male and those who are female. In Him, all of those will be saved. So that at the throne, as we see in Revelation chapter 5, some from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will glorify and praise Him. He went into the ground, literally. And when He was resurrected, He bore much fruit. Don't ever miss that. It's not potential. It's actual. Our Savior did not haphazardly give his life away, hoping you would believe. He gave his life knowing you would believe. Jesus' purpose, thirdly, or secondly, excuse me, must, must be our purpose if we are to bear fruit as disciples. The gospel requires our death. My mind, here, my mind is 
is caught. Whoever loves his life, suke in the Greek. You can't see that life in this passage is two words in the Greek. In the English, it's one word, life. Whoever loses his, loves his life, loses it. The word life there is suke. It means their intellect. Whoever loves their mind, their heart, their dreams, their person, whoever loves that, loses it. One of the greatest lies going right now is live for your dreams. You live for your dreams and you'll never achieve them. They'll be the cause of your death eternally. Whoever loves his life, his dreams, his person, his mind, his will, his intellect, loses it. And whoever hates his life, same word, in this world will keep it for eternal life. Zoe. Different word in the Greek. Zoe. What does Zoe mean? When connected with the word for eternal, then this term means the life of God. Applied to us, it means we have eternal life now and we have it more abundantly, as Jesus said in John chapter 10. If you love your life, everything you naturally desire and want and think and are, you will lose your life, not only at death, but eternally you'll lose it. But if you hate your life, if you hate it, what does that mean, hate? How can a man hate his own flesh? Not hate as in despise, but hate as in another category. Set aside. Put off. Jesus is saying, put your life off. Set it aside. Don't live for it. Live for eternal life. Separate category. Separate category. The supreme category of our life must be the life of Christ. That must be our life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. This is what he's saying. Whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life, whoever's been crucified with Christ, whoever has died to his dreams, his goals, his intellect, his power, his persuasion, his popularity, his possessions, his family, his friends, whoever's died to those things will gain eternal life. The American dream may damn more people than any other one entity the world has ever known. That great deceptive lie to pursue for yourself and for your posterity. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Which now has become nothing more than selfish, individualistic code language for I get rich at all costs. And my children are safe and happy. I don't think that's what our founders thought it to mean. But that's what we believe it to mean. Live for yourself as long as you might call today, today. 
More people, more people, I believe, are headed to hell for that dream. And we're exporting that dream all over the world. All over the world. We go to the tribal people of Africa and we tell them, if you'll just accept our Jesus, you get our dream. You got one cow right now, you'll have 18 if you just believe in Jesus. You got one wife right now, well, and she's sick and dying, but she'll be healed and she'll love you more than ever if you'll love Jesus. Hogwash. She might die. Your one cow might starve to death and your children might catch malaria and die. Don't buy that. Jesus didn't preach this dream. Jesus said, die to that dream. You say, well, where's the example? He went to the disciples as they were mending their net and he said, follow me. They understood what he meant. They left their nets and they followed him. Abandoned their life and followed him. Oh, you want another example? A negative example. I gave you the positive. Okay, I'll give you a negative. The rich young man came and said, Oh God, Lord, Master, what must I do to be saved? He said, Don't call me good. There's no one good but God. Keep the commandments. I've kept them. It's good. Sell all you have. And then give it to the poor and follow me. And the young man, saddened in his heart, turned. Unless you lose your life in this life, hate it, you will lose your life for eternity. You want more examples? Well, men like Adoniram Judson, who after being converted, left this continent and died a painful, horrible death preaching the gospel in Burma. Men like Jim Elliot, who wrote in, his, in his, this passage in his own words in his journal just before he was to go into the jungles soon to die at the hands of the natives. He didn't love his life. He didn't love his life. Pastor Joseph in Liberia, who two months ago was hacked up with machetes for preaching the gospel. His wife and children brutalized, raped in front of his eyes. He hated his life. He had already lost his life. And he had gained eternity. And now he stands and preaches with the scars left on the flesh that simply carries around the gospel. That's all it's good for now is to carry the gospel. Too drastic. Okay? The mother who after a child is born gives up every dream she's ever had to raise her children in simplicity with no recognition that they might know Christ and make Him known. She never leaves her house much. But she's died to her dreams. She's living the gospel for her children's sake. The businessman who rather than taking the practices of this world and applying them to his good takes the gospel and applies it to his workers' good. And in doing that lives the gospel so that some might believe. I'm not saying you've got to go to Burma to die. I'm saying you've got to die here or you'll never go to Burma.
die here. That's what Jesus is saying. Fall in the ground where you are and die that you might bear fruit. If you don't, you're not his disciple. That's what he's saying. He said, that's too harsh. Okay, we'll take Luke's rendition. Take up your cross and follow me. You like that one better? Same thing, isn't it? They didn't think of the cross as some ornamental fixture. They thought of the cross as execution. When he said, take up your cross, they didn't think, leave our fishing nets. They thought, die. We know that's what they thought. In John 21, Peter's going to ask, how long is John going to get to live? He said, it doesn't matter how long he lives. You follow me. If he stays until my kingdom comes, what does that have to do with you? Follow me, Peter. Follow you where? To an upside-down cross on the steps of a church in Rome. That's where most of these men died. Their, their seed fell in the ground, and they have borne fruit for centuries. And there are men in our day dying every day that they might bear fruit. And just one more example of this dying. Men, I call on you as a husband to die to your dreams. Die to your dreams. Your dreams of, of whatever they might be. Of Die to them. So that you might serve your family. That's the best way some of us will ever preach the gospel. The problem in most marriages in the church is that the partners still live as if they are living. The only way your family, the only way your marriage will work is if you are a dead man, a dead woman walking in the spirit and the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it works for a lifetime. It's the only way it works. Fall to the ground, die, that you might live for eternity. The gospel requires Jesus to be our Lord. Some might teach this easy believism, but Jesus doesn't. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's lordship. That's lordship. Oh, it doesn't say Lord, but it's obvious, isn't it? Follow me, and if you follow me, the Father will honor you. Some of us are so caught up in getting the acclaim of the world, myself included, and all we should be caught up in is the acclaim of the Father. That every day He might say over us, that is my servant, and He has done well. When you lay your head down at night, if you've accomplished nothing but that, you've accomplished all. You've accomplished all. Jesus' purpose in life was to die so that he might bear fruit. His purpose was that we might die and bear much fruit. And Jesus' purpose in life was to die so that the Father was glorified. And as we finish, we just simply need to look at this text again to say, it's not just us that he died for. He died for the Father. His soul is troubled. Adversity has come upon him. It's it's the troubled soul he had in, in, in John 11. He's disquieted within when he sees the people mourning Lazarus. And when he thinks of raising Lazarus from the dead, his soul is uneasy. It's the same thing in Gethsemane. When he poured out his his soul to the Father, it was disquieted within him. It was anxious. It was in anguish. And Jesus faced this great anguish 
at the hands of his father. Acts 2 verse 23 says that he went to Jerusalem and died according to the preordained plan of God. It wasn't an accident. He went knowing he would die. He died not for himself, but for those who would believe. And not just for those who would believe. He died for his father. Hebrews 9 verse 14 makes it very clear that his sacrifice was given for the father. His blood was for the father. It appeased the wrath of God against us. Jesus, in this moment, cries out to his father and he submits himself to the hour which has come, which is his death. And he receives the public approval of his father. The voice boomed from heaven. These are the bookends of Jesus' ministry. At his baptism, the voice boomed from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At the end of his public ministry, the voice booms from heaven. I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name again. When did he glorify his name? Every time Jesus acted, every time he performed a miracle, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration... God's name was being glorified. Every action he took was for the glory of God in his life. And in his death, Jesus explains the significance and the method of his death with this next statement. Now is the judgment of this world. The dividing of this world. No longer will he pass by those who don't believe. He will no longer pass them by. His son has come. The voice has spoken. God has given... A sacrifice for their sin. Hang with me. Please hang with me. It's imperative. Get this. His Father has sent the perfect sacrifice. And He now does not pass over unbelief. The judgment has come. The light came into the world. And the world did not receive it. But rather loving the darkness, they ran and hid from the light. If you're here today without Christ, you are sitting under the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is most visible in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what awaits you, look at the cross. That is your eternity. Sitting under the wrath of God. The dividing line has been drawn. You have been separated Jesus says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I don't want to make a big point out of this. This is a message or a series of messages. But may I just simply observe here that Satan is being cast out. And that might seem confusing because we know that Satan still is very active in this world. Yet John writes for us in the Revelation chapter 20. That at the cross, Satan was bound. Bound from what? Deceiving the nations any longer. It is no mistake. It is no mistake that in the story where the Greeks come and say we would see Jesus, and Jesus opens the gospel up to say, everyone, everyone is hearing this truth, and this truth is for all nations, that he would then say the judgment has come and Satan has been bound or has been cast out. Where has he been cast out from? What is going on here? 
I say it's the same as Revelation 20. He's bound from totally deceiving the Gentile nations. Till this point, the Gentiles, for all intents and purposes, have not been welcomed into the gospel. It has been for the Jew only. Now it is open to all the world. We're not waiting on Satan to be bound one day. He's bound now. He's bound now from deceiving. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He can't stop what the gospel will do. When the kingdom comes, Satan is cast out. We see another example of this when the disciples go out in ministry and cast out demons and they say, when Jesus says, I saw lightning and I saw Satan fall from heaven. When the gospel comes, he is bound. He is cast down. He cannot oppose it successfully. Jesus will win the lost ones, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. In his crucifixion, we see that he will draw men to himself. John three, fourteen, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, that he might draw all men to himself. And he says again here, at the end, at the close of his ministry, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men from us to myself. So the crowd says, Who are you? You can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to sit on the throne. Who are you? Who is this son of man? You must submit to Jesus. The bottom line is, I've told you the gospel this morning over and over again, and yet you can sit and listen to the gospel. These people heard the gospel from Jesus Christ himself, and they went away unbelieving. It doesn't really do you much good to come sit for an hour and listen as the Word of God is preached. That does you no good in and of itself. You can leave unbelieving. It's what these men did. We're going to look at that a little deeper next week also. You must believe in the biblical Jesus because He is the light. This is a picture of the sun setting. Jesus is saying the sun is setting. Follow the sun or it will set and you will be in the darkness. Follow me. It's another statement of be with me. Believe in me. Follow me. I am the light of the world. If you're in my light, you're never in the darkness. If you're outside of my light, you are always in nothing but darkness. You must follow the light now because the darkness is coming. There comes a day. I don't know when it will be. For each of you, when the gospel will no longer enter your ears. If you live in this nation, you are awake. You hear the gospel a lot. And so at your death, you will no longer hear the gospel and you will no longer, the door will be shut, in other words. The day is coming when unbelief will be accounted for. That day may be today. It may be tomorrow. I don't say that to scare you, but simply to sober you. That you can sit through hundreds of messages better than this one. Jesus, I believe, was the greatest preacher to ever walk the face of the earth. Thousands sat under his teaching. And now they stoke the fires of hell. Because they would not believe. They sit in darkness. The light set. It was no longer there. 
That does not have to be the case. It does not have to be the case. Because if you've heard the gospel, you have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to respond in faith, to believe in him and be saved. So I leave you this question. Will you submit to and believe in this king who came for the purpose of dying that those who believed might know the Father. Will you accept Him? Will you submit to Him? Will you believe in Him? We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. Susan's going